Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Former Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt has been hired as an energy lobbyist in Indiana. As WFHB's Graham Capito reports, Pruitt is expected to lobby for the coal industry and against coal plant closures across the state. President Trump's first EPA head, Scott Pruitt, resigned in July of 2018 amid reported ethical violations and mismanagement of funds, according to NPR News. Pruitt registered last week as a lobbyist in Indiana. He was hired by Hallider Energy Company. Although it is based in Denver, Colorado, Hallider maintains substantial coal mining interest throughout Indiana. Hallider owns Sunrise Coal, the second-largest coal mining company in Indiana. In a press release on Saturday, Halder said Pruitt was hired to, quote, protect the ratepayers of Indiana from Vectran and Nipsco rate increases. Vectran and Nipsco, two Indiana-based utility companies, have petitioned the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission to close down many of their coal-powered energy plants. Hallider says coal plant closures would increase Indiana utility customers' electricity bills. Hallider and former EPA head Scott Pruitt would be lobbying against Vectran and Nipsco's coal plant closures. The Indiana utility companies have denied closing coal plants would lead to an increase in utility rates for customers, according to Environment and Energy News. While Vectran and Nipsco say customers will face initial rate increases, they say their plans to cut down on coal power and shift toward renewable energy will save customers money long term. Indiana is one of the top 10 coal producers in the nation, with about 75% of coal mined in Indiana used in state. Indiana is the third highest coal consuming state, after Texas and Illinois and it ranks second in coal consumption for electricity production after Texas. Additionally, the state's steel manufacturing and automotive sectors also contribute to coal consumption. Indiana ranks third in the nation when it comes to industrial coal consumption, and 10% of coal mined in the state goes to work in steel mills as industrial coke. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, Coal-fired electricity generation is on the decline. In 2017, 70% of the state's megawatt hours were produced via coal. 
The cheapened production of natural gas via oil shale and fracking has largely contributed to the decreasing use of coal as an energy resource. Renewable energy is also eating away at coal's market share. Over half of the 200 megawatts brought online in 2017 in the state were from renewable energy sources. Wind produced just 5% of the state's power in 2017. For WFHB, I'm Graham Capito. Last Friday, a federal court ordered the Trump administration to stop stalling a potential ban on chlorpyrifos, a pesticide linked to brain damage in children. The court ruling gives regulators until mid-July to make a final decision. In 2000, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency ended household use of chlorpyrifos, citing unacceptable health risks for children. Despite the household ban, farmers can still legally spray the pesticide on crops such as apples, broccoli, corn, and strawberries. Spraying edible crops is also tied to nervous system problems in people and animals. The unanimous ruling Friday from the Ninth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals is the latest development in a long legal battle led by anti-pesticide, environmental, and farm workers organizations. Plastic waste and particles too small to be seen by the human eye are present in many parts of the environment. A team of research scientists has now found microplastics at the top of the Pyrenees Mountains. The researchers, who published their findings in Nature Geoscience, found microplastics high in the mountain range between France and Spain, far from human settlements. The team from France and the UK spent five months sampling the mountain air for plastic pieces. They found almost 4,000 plastic particles per square foot of land each day of the study. The scientists suspect that the plastic particles, which they counted with the aid of microscopes, originated in small towns about 60 miles from the sampling area. They deduce that wind transports the plastic waste particles to the mountaintops. The study underscores the pervasiveness of plastic waste. In 2015, the U.S. produced 34.5 million tons of plastic waste. A new study finds that over recent decades, climate disruption has made poor nations poorer, while wealthy countries have continued to prosper. However, the study also says few countries will escape the effects of climate disruption as temperatures rise and storms increase. The study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, found that from 1961 to 2010, rising temperatures diminished the per-person gross domestic product of the planet's poorest countries by 17 to 31 percent. As a result, the gap in economic output between poor and wealthy countries widened. Countries that have suffered the worst effects of climate warming are located in warmer parts of the world such as Africa, South Asia, Central America, and the Middle East. In warm locations, rising temperatures have reduced agricultural yields and labor productivity. Other studies make the connection between rising temperatures, the crushing property that follows, and an increase in regional violence. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. 
offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for Secret Life of Fungi. Imagine with me a spacefaring vessel powered by renewable energy, a ship that can move instantly across the galaxy. In a Star Trek future, when Captain Pike first takes the helm of the starship Discovery, he says, If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms, I kind of have to go on faith. This is Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll explore how top fiction writers imagine the role of mushrooms in space in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. We know that fungi spores are capable of traveling through deep space. It's a leap of imagination, but hang with me. Discovery, an experimental science vessel in the Star Trek universe, travels along an interstellar mycelial network powered by spore drive. Full disclosure, I'm a sci-fi fangirl, and when Star Trek launched a new series in 2018, I was doubly thrilled when early in Season 1, Lieutenant Paul Stamets, an astromycologist on the starship Discovery, invents the ultimate in renewable energy, spore drive. And yes, the character Lieutenant Stamets is named after and inspired by the present-day very real research mycologist Paul Stamets. Discovery is sci-fi at its best, imagining a far-out science application in which real biology meets theoretical physics. The concept of Discovery's futuristic spore drive is more than mere fantasy. It's based on research about the velocity and connectivity characteristics of the fungi kingdom. This new Trek series also explores the dangers of the fungi kingdom, Disrupted by Discovery's travels, the mycelial network inserts itself on board ship, engulfing in Centilli with a eukaryotic organism, and within moments, she's gone, consumed. That gets Stamets' attention and opens communication between the human Starfleet travelers and the vast ecosystem they traverse. Spoiler alert, Tilly is resurrected within the network and does return to the science lab on Discovery. The concept of an interstellar mycelial network threaded throughout our universe and a ship powered by spore drive is more than fantastical sci-fi. Discovery is a science dream spun from the outer reaches of theoretical astrophysics and grounded in the way our Earth ecology functions every day. In particular, the largely invisible foundation of multicellular life, the fungi kingdom. I write this segment on the day after Easter, a sunny day after rain during the Morel mushroom season. I invite you, dear listener, as you spend Earth Week exploring the woods in southern Indiana, scouting for delectable fruiting bodies sprouting from an underground Morel mycelial network, to consider the metaphysics of deep ecology. Everything is connected. As Lieutenant Stamet says, Astromycology has taught me that nothing is ever truly gone. Fungi are the universal recyclers. This is how termination begets creation. 
It's why life is eternal. For five years, the Indiana Forest Alliance and volunteer researchers from across the country have been gathering data on species living in Indiana's forests. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy speaks with the IFA's executive director, Jeff Stant, who says they're having trouble finding experts who know about many of the species they're discovering in Indiana's forests. We divided life into, into 12 different categories and put teams out there to inventory, survey the plants and animals and fungi and lichens and all those categories. We have documented an amazing level of biodiversity in the Yellowwood, Morgan Monroe backcountry area that we've surveyed. It's about a 900-acre tract of hardwood forest there, 320 acres of it is in the Low Gap Nature Preserve, and we are close, uh, the species count now is close to about 4,000 species, and the large preponderance of those species are insects or other invertebrates, and then uh, followed by uh, vascular plants, and then fungi. And I have to say that we could spend another 10 years at the Yellowwood site before we would have adequately characterized the full breadth of biodiversity that we can see is there. And that's because there are many orders and families and groups of insects and other invertebrates in our hardwood forest that there simply aren't any experts studying that closely in North America. And so we are at a loss to survey, let alone identify, uh, hundreds of species of ants and centipedes and millipedes and other invertebrates that are out in in these forests. Uh, But we clearly are seeing them when we're out in them and recognizing that there's this storehouse of biodiversity that has just never been documented in an Indiana hardwood forest. And I think it's important to point out this is the first attempt to document the the biodiversity that is this comprehensive and and what we're calling this is a baseline survey because it's the first attempt that we can find anywhere in the literature to actually go into a tract of state forest or national forest that's beyond the century mark in age and find out what is living there in it that's part of that forest ecosystem. Uh, There just isn't any other survey of this magnitude that we can find has been done anywhere on the state forest or the national forest, or in the state parks for that matter. It's important to characterize biodiversity because we, we think that climate change is causing, quote, some scientists, for example, an apocalypse in decline of insect species, native insect species uh, across the planet. Uh, huge declines in reptiles and amphibians and birds and other other taxonomic groups of life, but without any baseline data 
for the largest taxonomic groups like, like the invertebrates, the insects, and the other arthropods, we don't have a beginning point to measure from to gauge that decline. And so when you hear scientists talking about this huge apocalypse, this huge die-off of species, it, it, it appears that we're, we're seeing this, but we don't have a good baseline to measure it from. And the, the EcoBlitz is an attempt to do that with the forest, the hardwood forest in Indiana um, and indeed in the eastern United States. And that, that's why it's important. We have a hard time gauging the impact of, of climate change on biodiversity without it. So at the Yellowwood site, we've documented there are 4,000 different species, but I should point out that's not counting major groups of, in, of insects and invertebrates that we can't find experts who can identify them for us across the country, particularly in Indiana, but elsewhere. We've gone to the Chicago Museum of Natural History, and we've gone to other uh, institutions, Smithsonian, and we, we just don't have experts who know many of the insects in many of these orders beyond family. They can't get it down to genus or species. It's really kind of shocking to me that, that a study like this hasn't been done previously. But yeah. We're stunned that, at what we're finding, and then we're realizing that we're on the tip of an iceberg here and that our state officials are just completely, they're operating in the dark when it comes to forest management in terms of understanding uh, what the impacts of their logging are on Indiana's native biodiversity. In these 4,000 species, a little more than 2,200, 2,300 of them are insects. We've found 150, approximately, uh, ichthyomonid wasps. These are parasitic wasps. Each one of these wasps species, uh, these ichthyomonid wasps or parasitic wasps, has a single host or a group of hosts that it parasitizes. It lays its eggs in these, these other animals that's different from the next Iquimonid wasp species. We've, we've got at least 150 of them. Now, many of these, however, we can't, we can't identify down to the species level. We can't even identify them to the genus level. Um, we, we do have them down to the family level, and we know that the largest family, Iquimonidae, uh, is that, that has the, um, the family that has the majority of these wasps, they don't have any keys below uh, uh, a certain tribe and, and subfamily so that if the wasp you find is in another tribe or subfamily, it hasn't yet been, we can't find an expert that has a key for identifying that species yet. Now, they may be there, but we, we can't find them just yet. So we're having to list these species uh, as as what they call morpho uh, in the by the, the the species at the family level, and just say this we know is a distinct species. We can tell from looking at it, uh, entomologists that we've consulted, but they don't know what it is. So they're listing it with the words morpho beside it, and so that just tells you how how much there is we don't know when you have. A parasitic wasp that is stinging other insects out in the forest or other invertebrates usually and laying its eggs in them. And it, it, there's 150 
different kinds of these wasps we've found, and most of them, we can't get it down to the genus of what they are. We just have them down to the family. You, you, you begin to realize that there's a whole bunch of parasite-host relationships out there in, the, in the, the taxonomic group that is the foundation of the forest ecosystem, the largest group of, of, of living creatures above the microbes out there, most diverse group, and but we don't have any idea what those parasite-host relationships are, or what impacts they have on on the plants, the non-vascular plants, the vascular plants, the trees. We we don't know, and so that's what what I'm saying. That the state is operating in the dark. They really are. They they they're clueless about what what many of these insect uh, host relationships are, and. Yet they're, they're proceeding forward with these logging plans to eliminate or liquidate the whole amount of 100-plus-year-old of forests we have out there without that knowledge. And we hope that by presenting the breadth of what they don't know to them that we might get them to take stock of this and slow down a little bit. So I should mention that of the 4,000 species, we've also found 24 rare, threatened, or endangered mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians on the site. That's under the state and, and federal lists for those species. Uh, we've found more than 200 different insect species that we don't know what they are down to the genus level. Uh, I mean, we just know what they are to the family level. We've found 23 spiders uh, that our first-time finds for those, those species in Indiana. Uh, they've been found, if you look far enough in the literature, in other states or in Canada, but never found before in Indiana. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we've, we've found, uh, uh, we've netted five different bats and, and have acoustic monitoring of three others. Uh, every seven of, of these eight bats are either rare, threatened, or endangered in the state or in, and nationally. We've really found a storehouse of rare, threatened, and endangered biodiversity and of unknown biodiversity and of vast biodiversity in the Yellowwood Morgan-Monroe backcountry. That was Jeff Stant, Executive Director of the Indiana Forest Alliance, speaking about the five-year eco-blitz the group is conducting in Indiana state forests. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. Which mammal has more teeth than any other in the state? If you answered opossum, you are correct. The Virginia opossum has 50 teeth, reflecting its prehistoric roots of 70 million years. The often maligned opossum is also known as being the only native marsupial in North America. Although rat-like in appearance, opossums are more closely related to kangaroos. An opossum gives birth to as many as 20 bean-sized, underdeveloped young who must climb to their mother's pouch. Those who survive the climb then compete for one of the mother's 13 teats, 
where they remain attached for two months before leaving the pouch. The opossum is an excellent tree climber due to the opposable toe on each of its back feet and its long, hairless, prehensile tail that can grip tree limbs to stabilize the animal as it climbs. Although slow and seemingly not so smart, the opossum, as a species, has done well. It can be found throughout most of Central America and the United States, having expanded into Canada over the last few decades. Opossums live in woodlands, farmland, and urban areas and prefer places near water. They are nocturnal and solitary. The opportunistic opossum will eat anything available, including insects, fruits, grains, garbage, and pet food. Its success can be attributed to its adaptability to human habitats. Opossums not only tolerate human settlements, they flourish and have a greater survival rate near them. City opossums on average weigh a third more than their country cousins. And those 50 teeth? When frightened, the opossum may hiss and bare its mouth full of teeth, yet they seldom bite. This small marsupial is really quite placid, preferring to avoid confrontation. You've been listening to In Nature. The Bloomington Organic Gardeners Association will host a free plant swap on Saturday, April 27th from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. It will be at the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. For more information, contact Genevieve at J-E-N-I-V-E-E-L-S at AOL.com. There will be a Griffey Lake Trail Maintenance Day on Saturday, April 27th. It will run from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. All tools will be provided, but please wear sturdy shoes, dress for the weather, and bring a water bottle. Meet at the dam on Dunn Street. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The Perennial Exchange Spring Plant Swap will be held Saturday, April 27th from 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. It will be at the Moose Lodge located at 840 South Cory Lane in Bloomington. Speakers will discuss invasive species and native plants. Contact Bernadette at bernie.deleon at indiana.edu for more information. The Green County Master Gardener's Annual Flower and Patio Show is scheduled for Friday, May 3rd from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and Saturday, May 4th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. The show will be at the Green County Community Events Center on both days. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Wes Martin and Kirsten Payton. Secret Life of Fungi was produced by Kaylin Brower. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. The script was edited by Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman Brower, Sarah Vaughn, and Jan Walker. 
Jan Walker is our producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also assess news, feature, audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes at any time at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.